You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM. This is your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer. Who likes to go by just Rocky. Um, as that came out earlier. And so we don't make any naming mistakes like Rocky did. Who was that with? When you called me by my first name, that was the worst faux pas anybody could have ever made. Oh, come on. You're just hypersensitive. Exactly. That's why it was the worst faux pas anybody could have ever made. Um, Anyway, we want to mention our sponsors, Highly Athletic Wear. Um, The only people who ever spot, well, to ever be accepted as a sponsor of the show. So, um, it just must say something about the quality of their clothing. And uh, on to our, our podcast today, there's been a lot of controversy, um, all sparked by our guest today. She pretty much created a maelstrom of back and forth between the ketogenic community and the paleo community by posting what I thought was a pretty sensible analysis of uh, what could go wrong with ketogenic diets. Um, People, it's funny, some people think of me as a ketogenic guy, some people think of me as a carb guy. Um, You know, in in truth, I'm neither. I understand the need for both and how to use it appropriately. And this uh, post, it was on Chris Kresser's site, actually, you know, I, I think made some some very fair comments about why we shouldn't always be myopically focused on the ketogenic state. And so um, after some badgering and cajoling, uh, the author finally agreed to be on the show. So welcome. Thanks for being on the show, Laura. Hi, guys. This is Laura Schoenfeld of Of Ancestralize Me. That's the website that I run. Yeah, sorry. Rocky Rocky had asked you a question, so I was trying to pause for that, but I didn't want to interrupt. But yeah, Lauren Schoenfeld of Ancestralize Me, which I, I I still love that. That's a great name, even though I'm, I'm not a fan of paleo stuff, as everybody knows. Like that, I think that's a, cool, a really good, good brand. Um, yeah, it kind of helps avoid helps helps kind of avoid the stigma that comes with paleo because I'm sure you guys are aware of how much there can be. So I think the word ancestral is a little bit less um, specific about what the diet actually entails. Yeah, well, less specific and also slightly more specific. Where I think you're your tact is to look at those older ancestral populations and even some modern hunter gatherers and, and say, look, there's so much variation, but consistency in health, you know, what, what we really need to find is kind of a, a more ancient way of eating for you instead of, Oh, everybody ate this way at one time in, in life. And that's the only way to be healthy. Um, so that, you know, ancestral thing, like, kind of actually resonates with me because if you do have a strong heritage component to your, especially to your lineage, you know, there's probably some ancestral diet there that tells you, that gives you that window of what you could eat and still be extremely healthy. Yeah. And I think it also identifies a lot of the foods that are, you know, definitely not ancestral, which can be very helpful for people. So things like vegetable oils and processed sugars and high fructose corn syrup, that kind of thing. So we can all agree that that wasn't part of our ancestral diet. So once you get rid of those, I think you're, for at least an American, you're like halfway there. So uh, 
it can kind of help newbies and then um, people that have been tinkering for a while both kind of get what they're looking for out of their diets. I'm going to be slightly contrarian because I would argue that high fructose corn syrup actually was in the ancient diet. Just oh, in, yeah? Well, you know, it just came in a different wrapper and in much, much smaller doses. I mean, right. it, that, that's exactly it. High fructose corn syrup plus table sugar is exactly what's in every fruit. Every fruit is a mixture of fructose, glucose, and some amount of sucrose, which yeah. you would be like adding table sugar to high fructose corn syrup. You know, it's, mm. it's pretty much the same thing. It's just there was no way we could ingest the quantities that we do today. Right. And then um, there's also the fiber and the nutrients that kind of help with glucose sensitivity and that, or I'm sorry, insulin sensitivity and that. Uh, but yeah, if somebody eats corn, I'm, I don't have a problem with that. But if they're chugging down a, a two liter Coke, then that's a little bit of a different story. Yeah. I remember a show where th- this guy was about to have gastric bypass surgery and he was like, you know, I, I, I don't really eat that much during the day, so I don't know how I've put on so much weight. I mean, he was, he was so big he could barely move. And when they went through his diet, you know, it was, it was pretty significant solid food-wise, but he drank something like 10 one-liter bottles of Coke a day. And he yeah, was just like, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know why I'm so big. I don't really eat a lot of food. <laughs> it's like, dude. You're- yeah, it's all. Little- a little scary sometimes how oblivious people can be, but uh, definitely well, that happens. His, that was his perception, though. I mean, you know, the, the, the soda wasn't food. It was just, you know, right? I mean, it's right. all about perception and how people get in trouble. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, just I and they had, you know, they had video of him just, you know, holding this two liter of Coke like it was how a normal person would, you know, maybe drink one of those would drink a can. I mean, it's kind of how he's holding it, just one hand just gulping away. I was like, wow. I, I just, that our message has gotten that messed up that low fat is still just so resonant that somebody can drink two liters of Coke all day long and be like, well, I don't, I have no idea why I'm not, why I'm gaining weight. It just doesn't even make sense to me. Right. It's a little scary. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. I mean, obviously the guy is, uh, it's a difficult scenario, obviously, but it's just, it's, it's so shocking. It's got I think it's even more shocking. I, and I've worked in hospitals before as part of my education. And I think it's more shocking when you learn how, how educated some of the people are that are doing that kind of thing. Like they're on Wall Street or they're a doc. Like I've actually, we had a doctor in one of our hospitals who was going in for a second below the knee amputation due to diabetic complications. And I'm just like, how does a doctor not figure this stuff out? If, if a doctor can't, then I don't know how much hope we have for like just the average person that's not medically trained. So it's, it's definitely, you'd be surprised, you know, it's not always education level that affects, you know, somebody's understanding of nutrition. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I was kind of more speaking to the point of just at the uppermost levels, you know, the education, well, what we think of as, you know, the science isn't science at all. It's all policy. So people just assume assume they're right. And I think this is probably one of the first epics in history where the assumption is, yes, I'm going to be sick. Yes. It's just a standard part of growing old. Yes. I'm going to need medication. And that's just all there is to it. There's nothing I can do. That's just a standard part of being a human being in modern society today. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that was ever a pervasive attitude um, until probably 10 or 15 years ago. That's just kind of the commonly accepted idea now. 
Well, I think you left out the part of my kids will not live as long as I will, too. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how can we think that's that's just normal? That's something we have to accept. I, I feel like it's so it's something that people don't have the foresight to even consider that, you know, that's even happening. And obviously, we're very aware of all the repercussions of this kind of stuff since it's our job to be aware of it. But mm-hmm. I think most people don't even have a concept that that's even an outcome that we're facing as a society. So most people, I think, generally aren't thinking about this stuff on any sort of regular basis. So, you know, they don't they don't have a sense of impending doom that their child is potentially going to die years before they, you know, as far as life expectancy goes. So uh, it's definitely, you know, I, I have a master's in public health. So a big component of my education was the public health side of things. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about this kind of stuff. And it's, in some ways it was depressing because it seemed like it's one of those like, you know, runaway train situations. But in other ways, it's helpful to kind of have a good sense of what, you know, we get a little bit, um, caught up in like uh, paleo and ancestral and all the communities and all the arguments that we're having amongst each other about the perfect diet. And then we kind of forget to step back and say, wait a second, like 90% of the population doesn't even have a clue that any of this is an issue. So um, sometimes I get a little frustrated because I'm like, there's so many people that need to learn about nutrition that are just completely oblivious. And we're spending all this time arguing about, you know, if a, if a 50 gram per day diet of uh, carb per day diet is better than 150 grams or 200 grams. And it just seems a little bit um, sometimes unnecessary to get into that level of minutia. Well, at the end of the day right now, if you took the average American and you put them on, we'll, we'll say a paleo prescription that's, we'll just say a little lower carb, like 100, 150 grams, whatever, um, to where they're not focused on carbohydrates for performance. So you, you just take the average American, you put them on that you know, paleo diet, quote unquote, or you put them on a ketogenic diet or you put them on carb night, it almost doesn't really matter. You're going to make them so much healthier than they are. And so the the starting point to me is, you know, kind of minutia itself. If your goal is just trying to get this person healthy, you Mm -hmm. know, find the one that's going to help them get healthy. And then you know, once they get healthier and we can see the real health problems that might be the most serious, you know, when somebody's carrying an extra 100, 200 pounds of weight and they're sedentary um, and they're eating the worst foods possible, we don't even know what the real problems are that they have because they've got mm-hmm. so many that are just a result of the crap they're putting in their mouth every day. So, you know, who, who cares where they start? Let's get them started. And then at that point, we could have some constructive conversations about really what is the best diet for them at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't even have to worry about the whys sometimes. It's like, look, you know, nine out of 10 times, this type of person, we put them on this diet and we get them to the next level of health. So why not start there? Because we know nine out, of ten, ten, nine out of 10 times it works. So let's just start there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that, that we can use as our segue into a lot of controversy actually sparked by Jimmy Moore's recent book, Keto Clarity. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if that in any way influenced you writing your article on Chris Kresser's site about uh, ketogenic diets and the potential pitfalls of those. Uh, no, um, I actually, because we have kind of a regular guest posting schedule for Chris just because he doesn't have time to write every week. So me and another um, 
colleague <clears throat> tend to take some of the load off him as far as getting that uh, that blog output because I'm sure uh, as far as you know you being a blogger I'm sure you know how difficult it can be to keep up with that kind of schedule so um, really I just the reason why I chose it is mostly because of my experience over the last few months working with clients Um, I I mean and I didn't even know when I was getting into this like I've only been really seeing clients full-time since um, clients like I have experience working with the average population but seeing like pretty high-level paleo clients have been working since February. And I didn't get into it thinking that, oh, everybody I talk to is, you know, going to need more carbs. And that's certainly not, you know, I don't have like a shtick where everybody that sees me is like immediately put on the same diet. But um, but it's been kind of shocking to see how many people that I've seen that really were kind of messing up their general health simply because they were too neurotically reducing carbs. To, they were avoiding them for really no reason um, you know, they're people who are active. They're not necessarily high performance athletes, but they're, you know, maybe doing CrossFit four times a week. Um, maybe they're runners, maybe they do, you know, a variety of different types of activities. And, and I get a lot of women too. So that's another thing I'm sure we'll talk about. But, um, I just found that a lot of them seem to be, they were going on these super low carb diets. They were doing like, you know, bulletproof coffee in the morning and then not eating until lunch. And then, you know, they'd be eating like tons of meat and vegetables for the rest of the day. And they weren't getting to the weight that they were looking to get to. They felt like crap. Their energy was really low. A lot of them had a lot of like mental health issues that were maybe, you know, not diagnosable mental conditions, but they were definitely affecting their quality of life. Um, And then some of them came to me for fertility issues. So maybe they weren't getting their period or they were trying to get pregnant and they just weren't. So it, it wasn't something that like, you know, I don't have some kind of vendetta against low-carb diets. I was just sharing my experience with the clients that I've taken over the last six months or so. And, you know, the changes that I've seen in their health after switching to a moderate carb approach, which I don't even know, some people might still consider it low if you're looking at, you know, the USDA guidelines or whatever. But, um, even just adding like 50 to 80 grams a day and kind of timing it based on their workouts and stuff, a lot of their issues would go away just from that change alone. So that was really the main impetus for me sharing the information. And um, I was actually, it's funny because you were saying how it was like such a, such a controversial article. I honestly didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Like I knew it would get a little bit of flack as far as people coming on in the comments and being like, this is wrong, you're wrong, and that kind of thing. But I was sort of surprised by the the ripple effect that it kind of reached out into the the low-carb communities and got got their feathers ruffled. So, um, But I like to ruffle feathers, so it's okay. Well, you know, what's interesting is it ruffled enough feathers that Chris, you know, got on and wrote this big post, seven things everybody should know about ketogenic diets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then... You know, this week we've got another follow-on about essentially how people can recover from having been on a ketogenic diet and how to figure out how many carbohydrates they should eat in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so even on Chris's site, I mean, you, you've caused this uh, basically wave of posts all just, I won't say doing damage control, but backing up and supporting your original post, which I just thought was in a way, common sense for some people. So whether it's, you know, you want to look at it as the carbohydrate load um, and, and especially for those doing, you know, you, 
you said they're not necessarily high performance athletes, but they're doing CrossFit four times a week. They're actually training more than some high performance athletes mm-hmm. at that level. And for them to not be eating carbohydrates, but yet not having taken potentially the year to two years to adapt to a low carb diet when doing performance, <laughs> I mean, they're just, they're, they're literally asking to be sick. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, what you saw, I think, in, in all these people coming through. And unfortunately, the ketogenic community really, you know, some proponents don't have a lot of experience with the high-performance athletes. Some of the high-performance athletes over-extrapolate. Um, so in my opinion, there's still a lot of confusion in the ketogenic community. And, you know, some of the things that are even recommended sometimes aren't even going to result in a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that also might be, you know, I don't, I don't know if you noticed in the ones who had their bulletproof coffee in the morning, which I like to call bullshit coffee in the morning. Um, no comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you don't need to comment on my, uh, my, my personal vendettas with people, but, um, you know, it, it, it really is kind of a, a, a bullshit kind of thing, um, that there was never any research about. It was just kind of this idea, you know, so people do this bulletproof coffee and, and then at lunch they're, they're, they're not, you know, they bring back in meat and vegetables, but a lot of times what I see in, in those populations is they really forget about the fat. Mm-hmm. And I had to deal with this with actually, you know, somebody I do business with, he wanted to get on carb night and he was really frustrated because he wasn't leaning down like he thought he should. And we just kind of went through his diet. I'm like, dude, you're not eating any fat. He's like, what? You know, I have heavy cream in the morning with my coffee. I'm like, you, <laughs> you have like 20 grams of heavy cream in the morning and then you eat very little fat the rest of the day. It's like, just jack up the fat. Don't worry about it. And then, you know, eat just till you're comfortable. And, you know, his fat load went up to uh, roughly about, you know, at least percent calorie wise, 70, 30, 70% of his calories were about fat from fat, 30% protein. And all of a sudden he started getting the results he wanted. And I'm like, you, you weren't ever in a place that was a very good dieting regime. And I'm not sure. Is that, do you see that a lot too, where when they, when they think ketogenic or they think low carb, they don't focus, they don't refocus on fat. They just start stripping out all the carbs they can. And yet they still try to keep a lean diet. Yeah, I mean, I think that can be an issue for sure, especially because a lot of a lot of the clients that I'm getting are in like their 20s and 30s, so they were, you know, raised on the idea that fat is dangerous and that kind of thing. So even if they understand logically that the fat is fine to eat, they tend to, I think, avoid it just because of the, you know, the habits of eating a lower fat diet and also the thought that, oh, if I, you know, if I don't load up on fat, then I'll be using my body fat for, you know, that energy that I need. So, um, and sometimes I think it's just, I mean, the, the ketogenic diet is, it can be pretty unpalatable if you're eating that high level of fat. And I don't think necessarily a lot of people are going to just, you know, if they have a meal and they're like, wait, I need another like 50 grams of fat. I don't know if people would just like pile on butter or coconut oil unless, you know, I guess some people are into that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. as far as like, you're just thinking about the way, you know, most, um, most culinary traditions are. It's not like you would put like half of your meal as being like a solid fat source, but sometimes it is that, you know, you, you do have to go way up on the fat and you have to find ways to increase it in a way that's not even necessarily palatable. So I think that is potentially an issue. And certainly the, the lower calorie intake can be an issue too. So if there's significantly 
cutting carbs and then they're not adding the fat back in, then their overall caloric intake is going to be so low that that itself can affect the, you know, the hormones and the, the HPA axis and that kind of thing. Yeah. That, and that's very powerful signaling. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen over a couple hours, but after three days, uh, too much calorie deprivation can, and that could be instituted either through the, you know, diet or exercise, you know, mm-hmm. that calorie deficit can start to have effect in as little as three days. And that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty significant. Yeah. It's interesting. I have a lot of, um, kind of middle-aged women coming to me for weight loss, which I'm happy to work with them. It's not my favorite population just cause it tends to be a lot harder once they've done years and years of like dieting and kind of low calorie and low fat uh, approaches. And it's, I don't want to say they've like completely ruined their metabolism, but they're certainly not as resilient as someone in their twenties or thirties. But, um, it is really challenging when I look at their diet and they're like on a 1200 calorie a day diet. And then they're doing like an hour of like cross training at the same time, not cross fit per se, but like, you know, boot camp or something like that. And I try to get them to increase just to like 16 to 1800 calories just to start. And it always amazes me how freaked out they are about doing that. And they're like, well, my, you know, this calorie calculator said that I need to eat, uh, you know, 1800 calories a day just to maintain my weight. And I always say to them, I'm like, well, so you've been eating 1200 a day for the last few months and you haven't lost any weight. If anything, you've probably gained weight. And so, you know, I don't know if continuing to do that is the best idea in this situation. And it's, it kind of takes them looking at it from that perspective to say, okay, wait a second, this calorie restriction thing is not working. And, you know, I'm not against a moderate calorie deficit, like two to 300 calories in a day on a regular basis. But once people are dropping like five, six, even like 800 calories a day below what their actual output should be, then that's when you see a lot of these, um, these hormonal issues that crop up. And then, you know, the, the thyroid function definitely is at risk. And then, um, the adrenal function is a big, a big factor too. So, and it is interesting. I, I find that it's definitely a bigger problem with women than men. For some reason, men don't have a problem with eating more. They seem to get really excited about it. Whereas the women clients I have, it usually takes a little bit of like cajoling them to do it. So it's, it's definitely interesting. There's a big gender difference with that kind of situation. So, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, this is actually a good point. Rocky, what, what have you seen and particularly in your female patients with um, thyroid deviations or whatever? And I just kind of want to turn the, cause where we're going to head later, uh, we're, we're going to talk about, how there's not just one healthy diet. Um, and Laura and I had a great conversation about this the other day, but you know, Rocky, what have you seen when you do, you know, carb night with your patients who are very low calorie and they've got some deviations, um, in their thyroid hormones and things like that. And you get them, you get them to try carb night. You know, um, so it's interesting. As just to backtrack, it's it's funny how you had mentioned the female patient who doesn't want to add calories back into their diet, and even though you are objectively giving them data, you're not getting any better, and you're still doing the same thing over and over again. I always find that fascinating from a psychological perspective. But to come back to the thyroid issue, you know, I think that uh, one of the things I like about carb night is that typically, if the if the client or if the female client's doing it right, I don't see deviations in thyroid dysfunction, even though they are very ultra low carb most of the week. But the, the problems I'll see is that I, I won't actually see deviations in the lab values per se on low carb carbonite. What I will see is some of those symptoms that you might correlate with hypothyroidism. 
So, you know, their lethargy is there, they're fatigued, they're not sleeping well. Um, you know, they're feeling, um, for lack of a better word, edematous or puffy. Um, I'll see some of these uh, symptoms in, in patients, and even though it isn't necessarily track with their hormone level, maybe I just haven't, you know, I haven't waited long enough for some of those things to change. Um, I can, I'll, I'll use those as, as signs that, okay, we've got to do something different here. So wh- whether it might be upping the calories, um, obviously as a medical doctor, it is, I, I have the, I have the uh, latitude to prescribe thyroid supplementation as well. So I, it's not my first, it's not the first thing I go to, but certainly in, in particular instances, that's also an option as well to just, you know, to get, get things moving along. But typically it is going to be, you know, changing either looking at their macronutrient profile, um, and usually the cases that you eat more fat or uh, upping the calories. So I kind of completely concur with what Laura has to say. Yeah, Rocky, I just have a quick question. Um, when you test your thyroid levels in the patients that you're you're having these uh, symptoms with, are you also looking at reverse T3? Uh, I don't do reverse T3, mostly from the standpoint of most of my my, my patients typically have insurance. Okay. And, and and the local labs, reverse T3 is considered experimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's quite expensive, actually. So, uh, and patients will get billed for it. So, I, 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 you know, patients will ask me about it, and I don't have a problem ordering the test. Um, but if they're, I always let them know up front, you know, you might get a two or $300 bill for the test. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's usually a deterrent because patients coming to see me, I think, have a different expectation than someone seeing maybe Chris or a naturopath where they're, you know, more or less usually paying out of pocket. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it's like, what's another couple hundred dollars? Yeah, so, right. So, um, but but I mean, if their if they're, if they're free T three is low, you know, you know, I would say that although it's not a hard and fast rule, I'm going to assume that maybe that the reverse T three might be on the higher end of normal or elevated. Well, know? and so I've actually seen patients with normal free T three and normal free T four and even TSH, but then their reverse T three was high, and that. There's different theories about what can cause that, but one of the major theories as far as the low carb, um, the chronic low carb or chronic under eating uh, issue is that the cortisol production in those, you know, inappropriate dietary states is actually promoting the conversion of T3 to T to reverse T3. So that's something that I've seen because I tend to get a lot of clients that because they're paying me out of pocket, so they do have a lot of labs where they're like, well, we got all this stuff tested and I can look at them. Um, and it's actually kind of common that I've, I've seen that where it's, you know, not that the, the other thyroid labs are a problem, but if the reverse T3 is too high, then obviously it's competing for binding at the T3 receptor. So, um, so they can still get those, those hypothyroid symptoms, even if they're not like clinically hypothyroid based on the normal labs that are tested. So it is a little frustrating that the insurance won't necessarily cover that lab because I think it's usually a big missing piece in a lot of people's um, a lot of people's thyroid diagnosis and especially if they've been tested and the doctor is like, well, you don't have anything wrong. So um, not that I'm saying that's what you would say, but I'm just, you know, it's obviously very unusual that most doctors would even test like free T3, let alone reverse T3. So, um, so that's something that I think is a potential issue that if it's not tested could be one of the underlying causes of the thyroid symptoms. And in that case, for me as a, as a nutritionist, my goal is to reduce whatever cortisol output is happening for whatever reason. So I tend to look at not only diet, but then lifestyle stuff too. Um, and usually if we combine 
I mean, like I said, an increase of carbs can definitely help with the, uh, the cortisol issue, but then I'll also focus on lifestyle stuff because like we were saying, a lot of these clients are over-exercising and then since they're not like professional athletes, they aren't necessarily getting the rest period that they need and they have a stressful job that's kind of adding the stress on. So, um, so for me, I, I, I tend to get a lot of patients that you know, even if the low-carb diet wasn't the ultimate stressor that's causing these issues, it, it tends to just be almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. And then, you know, by fixing that, it can at least relieve some of the the overall stress load that they're under. So, um, See, I think a lot of this is kind of context um, from what I'm hearing. I mean, a lot of this research we have about cortisol and cortisol being bad and cortisol having uh, dysfunctional properties and um, carbs decreasing cortisol output temporarily, actually, um, which even the output decrease might, st- the presence of car- cortisol isn't going to go away. I mean, you still got consequences by adding the carbs back in. I think there's a huge context problem in the research and literature we look at for that because it's all in essentially carb-based populations. Mm-hmm. Um so the and you know we know when insulin levels are kept at very low levels and blood glucose levels are kept low to normal cortisol actually has nothing but positive benefits in the body it actually allows the body to cope with much higher life stress loads than would normally be possible um without causing all the degradative issues that we think of um, it actually does not have as big of an effect on calcium absorption in the bones. Uh, it does not increase the storage of body fat in that scenario. It does not create um, situations where we're destroying muscle tissue for energy. You know, it, it actually all of a sudden becomes this super hormone that's incredibly positive in the body. But, you know, if we are in a state where we're extremely calorically limited or we're fat limited. So cortisol now is trying to get the body to mobilize some energy sources, but it can't do it effectively enough because we're not eating enough fat to keep insulin levels under control. What we see is a potential uh, canard essentially that is being assigned to ketogenic diets that I don't think is fair. And that's that said, Oh, well, you know, in your article, you know, the, or I mean, in the conversation here, It's like, well, you know, add in the carbs, it'll fix the cortisol problem. Well, you know, it might just be the caloric load that you've increased is what corrected the cortisol problem. And it's not related to a true ketogenic diet. It's more related to a low-carb, high-protein diet is where we would see those serious problems. I was going to actually, I was going to suggest something very similar and ask Laura if um, as opposed to in some of your clients adding carbohydrates, have you done that where you've actually increased their caloric load just to see if they improved? Is, is that something that's been kind of on the on the forefront of your mind, or is it usually kind of the usual first thing is to kind of add the carbohydrates in? Um, well, so I haven't specifically, you know, gone in and said start eating more fat. Um, usually because a lot of them, you know, the the calories aren't super low. It's not like a lot of these women that come to me in their 20s and 30s are doing those like 1200 calorie a day diets. They usually are eating around like, you know, 2000, 2200 a day. Um, and so I'll, I'll usually just adjust the macronutrient ratio on that point. So, you know, they're still eating about the same amount of food, but then they're just slightly increasing the carbs. And then, like I said, I tend to do a, 
a targeted carb reintroduction based on their exercise schedule. So we'll do the post-workout carbs and the dinner carbs first before we, you know, just overall start adding carbs everywhere. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you that, you know, probably a huge component of it is the the chronic under eating that comes with a lot of the low carb diets that most people are on. Um, so well, I it's think definitely there's, something there's Sorry, like, a, I was going to say, I think there's a, just a low source of efficient energy as well. I mean, so a lot of people go low carb and I, I fight this all the time. Like I, you know, one example, a close example to me and uh, that I just gave and you know, it's that low carb that looks like energy wise, they're fine, but macronutrient breakdown between protein and fat is just so horrible um, that it really causes a lot of deviations that we then, you know, we, we kind of fall back into the story that we were raised with. And, you know, the initially, you know, back in the day when I first started experimenting with low carb, you know, that was the story I fell back onto. It's like, okay, this isn't working. If it's not working, it must be because carbohydrates are really important. So I'm going to put, start putting carbohydrates back in my diet. And I felt better in that moment, but it ultimately had negative impact on my body. Whereas now, um, I, I'm very strategic about how I put my carbs in, but, you know, most of the time I've, I've got a really good balance of, of fat and protein. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I, and I think that's the really difficult thing for both communities, um, paleo and uh, ketogenic communities to really reinforce in the public. And, you know, maybe that's the problem. Maybe you just can't do a ketogenic diet the way it needs to be done for you. Okay, mm-hmm. let's find an alternative then. And, you know, just yeah, realize I mean, I th- with your alternative, there may only be so much you can do co- body composition-wise. And, you know, if that's fine with you, then, you know, that's great. You know, what, what's, what's your focus? What's your goal? What's the context? Mm-hmm. Um, which is what we had and talked I, about I agree before. totally. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest issues that I come across is, um, you know, when the goals are kind of not lined up because the person, you know, their ultimate goal that they're working towards is perhaps the body composition thing, but, you know, they're doing it at the expense of maybe their mental health or just their energy levels and that kind of thing. And um, I will admit that usually when the carbs go back in, people, they're not going to just lose weight from that. I mean, I have had a couple clients where they added carbs and then they lost the weight that they were trying to lose, which I thought, you know, was a little bit counterintuitive, but um oftentimes it's not even that their body composition changes, it's just that they feel so much better as far as the energy and then like if they're in a workout, they're not hitting that wall where they can't, you know, c- uh keep up with the the workouts the way that they used to. And, you know, it may be a temporary fix and granted, like a lot of the results I'm seeing are within a few months. So I would love to follow up with these, these people and see how things are going, you know, months in or a year in or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, I usually like to kind of prioritize quality of life over, over even like body composition or um, even certain health things. I mean, if somebody's miserable and they're, you know, maybe they have I'm trying to think of like a health issue that wouldn't potentially benefit. I mean, obviously we talk about things like um, epilepsy and diabetes and that kind of thing as being beneficial for low carb. Um, But for example, I had a woman call me recently who's type 1 diabetic and she is just completely struggling on this ketogenic diet. Her gut has been completely 
wrecked since she's been on it over the last couple of, I guess it's almost been a year now, and her gut function has just steadily declined. Um, so at that point, it makes you question, okay, even if your blood sugar starts to get out of, out of control a little bit compared to what it was in under the ketogenic diet, you know, is it worth it to have to mess around with your insulin a little bit in order to have that energy that you used to have in order to have that mental stability that you're missing. And so, I don't know. I mean, I don't often have people that it's to that level of, of, you know, is it worth fixing my health problem to get to that quality of life that I'm looking for? Usually it has to do with the aesthetic goals, which, um, you know, people have different, different priorities in life. I personally, you know, I, I like to be fit, but as far as having a certain body composition, it doesn't really get me that excited. So, um, so I tend to try to make sure people are not kind of losing sight of the forest for the, uh, the, uh, the body composition tree, because I don't want somebody to be miserable, but look really good in a bikini, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so it's, and I, I do find, and it's interesting, you know, I'm obviously a woman and you, you two are men. And I do find that the women tend to have more of these issues than the men do. Um, I don't often come or I don't often have male patients coming to me on a super low carb diet struggling. I mean, I've had a couple, um, one of them was actually having high blood pressure issues and he was on a essentially ketogenic diet and, um, we introduced some reintroduce some carbs and his blood pressure went back down. And I do question if that was a more potassium intake thing, but, um, but it's just interesting to see the way that the men and the women react differently. So, and I don't know if we have necessarily a lot of evidence to support whether there's huge gender differences in their ability to, to deal with the long-term ketogenic diet. But um, like I said, I think some of the issues that I've seen are more mental health related and, um, and energy related. So if, if that's really going downhill for a client, we kind of have to reprioritize and figure out, okay, what's the most important thing? And, and you know, is it worth losing weight if it's going to make you feel like death every day? Well, yeah, there, there's so many issues at play when, when we're trying to look at this. I mean, I, like you said, you don't even, you don't always just look at, okay, are you on quote unquote, the optimal diet for paleo or whatever? Um, when, what it is, I mean, there's so many factors. It's like, look, is your diet making you so stressed out that that's what's making you more sick on a regular basis? Like, look, let's figure out how to fix that. Um, in a lot of instances, I actually kind of wanted to go back to that point where you said, you know, you, you've put, um, you've put carbs back into somebody's diet and you saw them lose the weight. And it's kind of funny. We've had some paleo people come in who are just really frustrated and we've took their, and I'm I'm not assigning, um, who made these suggestions, but we took the pound of potatoes out of their diet every day and really didn't change much else except added some fat in the morning. And all of a sudden they started to lose a ton of weight and that's Mm -hmm. very consistent. Um, so, you know, what, what we see there are just kind of like a, a mix of, so, so here, here's my problem is like, there's a very, very, very physiological way to approach all of this. Um, and we're starting to get the tools to do it really well. And then, you know, the problem in your article highlighted this in the community so effectively, the problem is that a lot of these things have become dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, Chris's response, seven things you should know about ketogenic diets. I did not agree with all of those seven things. And there's a lot of science that doesn't either. Um, I felt like some of those came from a place of dogmatism 
Whereas, you know, the same thing on the ketogenic side, when they attack paleo, I feel like, you know, 50 to 70% of what they say is also not scientifically accurate. It comes from a place of dogma. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, pick, pick your camp. I don't care. What, whatever camp you pick, zone diet adherence, attacking paleo, or Alan Aragon attacking everything, including what he said on the last article that he wrote. I mean, there's most of it is not based on, you know, this a very, very solid physiological foundation to where we, we could look and say, okay, we're at this level of knowledge of physiology. We're at this level of what we can learn about a person. And then from there, we can say intelligent things about their diet. End of mm-hmm. story. And, and I don't think any of these camps, they all work kind of from the top down. They're like, well, ketogenic does all this awesome stuff. And these people, therefore, are ketogenic for everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. And then you have paleo. It's like paleo does all this awesome stuff for, ever, for these people and therefore paleo for everybody all the time. And right. you know, I, I, I think that's in zone. Zone. Oh, zone is an awesome diet. Some divers used it once and had great results when they weren't actually on the zone. But and it's like, okay, therefore the zone for everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest problem comes from trying to assume that what works for one person should work for another person. And if they're not getting their results that they're looking for, that it's just that they're not doing it right. I mean, and I think that comes from any, any like, you know, diet dogma that exists, whether it's paleo, vegan, ketogenic, you know, zone, any of these things. And I, you know, being a dietitian, I mean, we obviously I've been exposed to a huge variety of information as far as what's the appropriate thing to recommend to clients. And obviously a lot of what I do is not necessarily lined up with some of the stuff that we get taught. Um, so, you know, I'm already generally going out on a limb as far as making some recommendations that are not, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ADA or AND sanctified recommendations. But on the flip side, you know, I think trying to rely too much on like scientific papers and what we know about biochemistry can, can get people into trouble because it kind of assumes that we have the total knowledge of every single um, variable as far as what can affect a person's response to a certain type of diet. I mean, I've been, I've been getting a lot of clients that have these MTHFR mutations um, and one specifically that I've come across several times that is I've had a really hard time finding any information about it because the, you know, the whole methylation issue is such a new thing that people are even learning about. But this one's called the, um, the COMT gene or COMT. And there is some evidence that if you have those, uh, the homozygous um, gene, and I forget which, which actual changes are the, you know, the bad versus the good ones, but I mean, that gene alone can significantly affect a person's metabolism of certain catecholamines. And there is evidence in, in the literature that people with the homozygous COMT gene actually do have just generally higher cortisol levels than the people without the gene. So, um, so it's interesting because I think, you know, there's so many underlying factors that can play into how somebody responds to a certain type of diet. And I think sometimes because people want to educate the masses, they tend to choose, choose a diet strategy that works for a lot of people. But then if it doesn't work for some people, it's, you know, the question is, okay, is it that they're not doing it right? Or is it because that person would actually benefit from a different strategy? And so I, when I'm working with clients, I try to take the perspective that 
generally if they've come to me, whatever they're doing currently isn't working. So let's experiment and try to tweak some stuff to see if there's, you know, if there is a different strategy that would actually be better. Now, whether or not that's increasing the calories or if that's adding maybe 50 to 100 grams of carbs post-workout and at dinner, um, whether that's to remove certain foods like FODMAPs or something, which can cause GI issues. It's just, it's so individual. And I, and sometimes even as a blogger, I have a hard time writing these articles because I'm like, I don't want people to read my article and say, oh, she says that low carb is going to, you know, ruin my thyroid and cause me to have adrenal fatigue. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't the point of the article. The point was like to point out that if you are having symptoms and if you're having the thyroid symptoms and if you're, if you're, if you do have the cortisol issues and if you are, um, you know, if you are trying to be active and you're bonking at every workout, no matter, you know, if you're adding fat or eating more calories and that kind of thing, then, then it's worth trying a different strategy. And, and I think some of the low carb people took my article as to say that everyone's going to have this bad effect of a, like after a low carb diet and nobody should do it. And I tried my best in the article to say, if it's working for you, then great. And yeah, there's a lot of evidence that some people do really great on it. So awesome. Just continue on if it's working. But if you are having trouble, then don't be afraid to experiment and not, you know, just follow blindly this, this dogma of whatever camp you've happened to fallen into. So that was kind of the, the ultimate aim of the article. And I think people could have misinterpreted it, whether or not it was that they didn't read it fully, or they just kind of saw the, the title and freaked out. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that trying to assume that, you know, there, there is one diet that will work for everybody and assume that we have enough information to make that decision in a way that's evidence-based a hundred percent, I think is a little bit, um, it's a, it's a little bit, uh, bold to make that statement. So, um, and well, perhaps it's because I've just seen so many different diets work for different people. Um, I don't know. See, I tend to, I tend to go a little bit more on intuition sometimes than science. And I guess maybe that's not the best thing for certain people, but it's worked pretty well for most of my clients. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the starting place of science actually. And that's something I tell my audiences that you have to experiment, mm-hmm. um, and make observations and, you know, do what fits with those observations, and that's going to open up potentially a new line of questioning later. Um, my argument is, like, we know so many solid physiological facts about the body, from the cell to how major hormones react to things. We can construct a really solid, basic understanding of, of diet. And, of course, there's always going to be outliers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way to ever get around the outliers and you know, what we're finding, what's, what's really interesting to me is with some of this epigenetic testing and um, some other genetic testing and historical factors um, and even how things could change because of how your mother ate while you were in the womb, also how you possibly ate the first few years of your life. Like all of these things are fascinating, but in the end, I think all of those things are going to point how to individualize things better. But Mm -hmm. I I still think we have a good enough understanding of saying, okay, here is the bottom level diet. Here is what if everybody went on, well, not everybody, but 90% of people went on at a very good base level where we're not going to see the diseases we have today crop up. Now, other issues may occur. So let's 
find out what it is that's causing those issues. And I would bet almost anything what we would find is that people who have a higher tolerance and ability to process and be and remain insulin sensitive longer are the populations that we would find adding carbohydrates back into their diet slowly would particularly improve mental performance mm-hmm. and mental feelings and emotional deviations. Um, but you would probably see other things as well. Uh, for example, pregnancy cycles, um, metabolism associated with that, fertility issues. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we actually know a lot. And the areas we don't know a lot, um, unfortunately, are areas that people are trying to base entire dietary paradigms around, which is what I think is kind of the problem right now. I mean, there's all these exciting sciences. Epigenetics is one of them. And I don't think anybody here on this call or probably hopefully most listeners would say, you know, from the little bit that we know about epigenetics right now, we should, we should try to recreate everybody's diet to follow what we know about just epigenetics. Let's ignore everything else. Oh, of course not. And yeah, half right. the time, the diet's not even the major impact on the epigenetics right. necessarily. Right. Exactly. And, I, and, and that happens, though. You know, we've seen it actually in recent history where people have seen one small aspect of the body and say, hey, let's model everything around that, mm-hmm. even though we don't really know much about it. Right. Um, and, and I'm going to point fingers. Paleo does that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Not to... <laughs> Just no, I mean, it, I, in my opinion, I honestly, like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, that gut focus, and we kind of talked about this, and I, I don't expect you obviously to be on my bandwagon here, but <laughs> I feel like there's so much focus on the gut, um, and even the statement "you're only as healthy as your gut" really warps the facts. No, your gut's only as healthy as you. End of story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, it, I do it, think that there there is potential for it to be a two way street where. Your, your overall health can damage your gut and then your gut, if you, like say if somebody takes antibiotics and their complete digestive system changes from those antibiotics, I mean, well, I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't that, say that that's their health impacting their gut. So I, correct. I believe that it's a two-way street so that your, you know, your, your general metabolic health can negatively impact your gut and vice versa. I, yeah, I would agree to that to a certain degree. I mean, there are things we could introduce that would, make our gut biome very sick, which would then release toxins, which would make us sick. Um, but, you know, I, I think in general, especially if you want to go with a whole foods approach and limit medication, like, for example, I have not had, it was funny, I realized for the first time I had not had to fill a prescription for anything in over 20 years because I had to go in and fill a prescription for something recently. And I was like, holy shit, I, I don't even know how this works. Like this doesn't even make sense to me. Um, And, you know, and, and and so if you're focused on kind of whole foods and trying to heal yourself with diet, you know, I I think we can, we could take some of that focus off of just focusing on the gut, because I think some people take that so far. They spend so much money on supplements. They're doing all these things like, Oh my gut bacteria is so much healthier. To be honest, now that I'm, very, very low carb most of the time. It's really funny. My gut is great. You know, I'm very regular as many times as I eat, eat during the day. That's when I go to the bathroom. Like everything is right on cue and very regular compared to how I used to be when I had bodybuilder diets. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because, and I don't, I try not to eat vegetables much anymore. Like if they're part of the meal and they're palatable and they're covered in butter, then I'm all about it. You know, but I don't go out of my way to get vegetables. 
And some friends of mine invited me over for dinner a couple weeks ago. And for dinner, they had a salmon salad. So I really had no option but to eat a lot of uh, spinach and stuff that was in the salad, which I just hadn't done in a long time. That wrecked me for days in my Mm -hmm. digestive tract. It just destroyed me. You know, I went back to my meat and cheese. I was totally fine, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of it and everything was back to normal. So, you know, we've got to realize it's not, it's not one or the other. It's not, you need high bacterial loads. You need this, you need this. It's like, you need a gut that's healthy. That's kind of mimicking what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. And I was healthy. And in that situation, I introduced something that actually made my gut biome like really overreact Mm -hmm. because it wasn't used to it. Whereas other people would argue, well, you need vegetables on a regular basis because they're a great fuel um, for some of your gut bacteria. Like, you know, it, it kind of goes both ways. Like if you're healthy, then your gut is probably in a really healthy space for you. Yeah, and, and, and I, I mean, just think that's going to be a, a main theme. Well, and one of one of the questions I have is: Is it more about the stability of the input? Because I mean, if, if you think about our modern our modern lifestyle, I mean, if we're taking trips to different countries or if we're getting exposed to to antibiotics or if we're changing our diet every two weeks because nothing, you know, if, if we're like, well, I'm going to try this diet and then that diet, <laughs> and it makes me wonder if it's the um, you know, the constant in like the, the flux of the population of bacteria that you have that can actually cause more of an issue than if you just have a stable ecosystem and it's just kind of the same input, you're eating a pretty similar diet and you have things working the way it's supposed to work and you're not introducing all of a sudden like adding a ton of probiotics or, or um, you know, taking some prebiotic supplement that just was too much at, at one time. So it can, I, I mean, I've seen people before that, you know, they've used these protocols to help. And then I've also seen patients where they tried these protocols and it just completely wrecked stuff. So, I mean, and sometimes, sometimes I think it's more the, the wild shifts in our gut flora that can actually cause these symptoms as opposed to just, you know, if you have something that works for you and the, and the gut is getting kind of used to the input, then it can actually stabilize and it won't be, you know, constantly fluctuating between like, you know, IBS symptoms and gas and bloating and that kind of thing. That's a, that's a very uh, insightful point. Oh, well, thank you. I, I hope, yeah, I, I no, hope that's... I've at least gotten one in the last 45 minutes. No, like you've, you've said some great things. Just because my opinions <laughs> differ, I mean, doesn't, you know, doesn't really mean anything. Like, like that, is, that is an excellent insight. Well, and I, it is something that I think people don't even realize how much change our guts are exposed to. So if you go to like, you know, uh, some kind of um, village off the map and they're not exposed to any, <laughs> any food imports, any, any drugs at all. I mean, they're, they get born with a certain gut flora and it essentially stays pretty consistent throughout their entire life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, and of course, this is all theoretical, and this, again, is me using my intuition about, you know, seeing, seeing the kind of impact that major changes can have in a person's diet. But, I mean, there's plenty of people that they go on a trip, and their gut function completely changes, and the only thing that changed was maybe the water that they were drinking, or, you know, the food was a little bit different, or the bacterial composition of the food that they were eating was somewhat different. And, um, and it's just interesting to see that, like, you know, I don't think that there's a specific diet that necessarily is the best for gut health, but I do think trying to keep things relatively consistent is actually more important. Um, now, whether that be 
eating 20 different types of vegetables in a week or eating one type, small portion sizes in a week. It, I think it depends on the person. Um, there's definitely people that if they eat raw vegetables, they are on the toilet for the entire day. And, you know, most people would say, oh, raw vegetables are so healthy. But I've had clients that I've told them to not eat any raw vegetables. So, um, you know, I think it's any, any aspect of the diet could essentially be wrong for any given person, whether or not we think it's generally healthy for the overall population. So, um, so yeah, I think it's interesting to hear that you don't eat too many vegetables because I think a lot of people, especially a lot of dietitians, would, uh, would have had a big problem with that <laughs> <Right>. statement. <laughs> so. Yeah, I got in trouble for saying that on stage at uh, Palo FX a couple years ago. But, you know, I still... I, I'm still convinced it's true. You know, you don't, you know, if, if you really get to a place where your body's healthy and um, you can kind of get some of these environmental and personal stressors under control. I mean, I go through times where things aren't as great as they, they should be. And I notice that in every part of my system, but it's never a, a wild swing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think if you get all that control, you can, you can find that steady state diet, whatever it is for you, that is the one that's consistent. You don't have to worry about focusing on, well, anything in particular because, you know, you have found a really good homeostasis for that period in your life. And, you know, I just, I think you make such a valid point with maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe it's these wild swings that people don't even realize they're doing. You know, if you commit to a diet plan and you can commit to it for even a month, you're going to give your internal system such a not no pun intended a regularity that right there could give it time to hit a steady state where it's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that that's well, that's why I said like that's so insightful because you could make an argument for why people's digestion get better pretty much within thirty to sixty days of of any strict diet. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you, you kind of hit it on the, you hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah, well, maybe we'll see some, uh, some research come out there. Because I know one of the things I've seen is that people with, with I think it's IBS, tend to have bigger um, gut bacterial shifts depending on what they're eating. So one, mm-hmm. of the, one of the big problems is not that the food itself is feeding a pathogen or feeding, you know, the wrong bacteria or something like that. It's more that any change that they make, the, the gut bacteria haven't established themselves to the point where they're robust to those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas people without IBS, they tend to be able to eat whatever they want and their gut bacteria are, are able to handle it. So um, it could be that the fluctuations in the, in the gut bacteria is more important than the, you know, the, the diet and which diet is, is the, the most gut supportive. So, um, and and again, that can go back to, you know, what your mother was doing or what her gut bacteria was like when you were born or if you were born, you know, cesarean versus uh, vaginal birth. And it's like the amount of input as far as the, the established gut bacteria that you have is so variable that, again, it's one of those things that we know some stuff about, but I don't think we know enough about to make any solid guidelines as far as if you see someone's, like if you do a stool test with somebody they might have a certain type of gut flora that you've seen before and you try, try a, a supplement and diet protocol that has worked for other people and it might not work for them. So a lot of times it's just experimentation, which is, it sucks for a clinician because, you know, you kind of have to 
hope that what you're experimenting with works long enough that the person doesn't just like leave and tell everyone never to talk to you. <laughs> right. It's like you want every you want all of your first attempts to work when you're working with cl- with clients cuz um you know the last thing you want is they come for a follow up and they're like everything's terrible which generally doesn't happen but uh but it's a scary thing to to deal with. I'm sure Rocky's been in that situation before where someone comes back and nothing's working. I mean, if you come back to the gut flora thing and the microbiome, I just think that, you know, all of this is really emerging science. I mean, there's a lot of basic research still being done. And how this translates to a clinical scenario, I mean, we can pretend to think that we know how it works. And we can try, and that's probably one of the reasons why we still have people coming back to us, whether it's you or me, who are not doing better or this didn't work because the complexities are so great. And the variables that we don't know about are so great that a lot of times you're just kind of throwing some stuff on the wall and see what sticks. And, exactly. you know, unfortunately, that's, that's kind of where we're at at this point in time. So uh, speaking of, or, sorry, Rocky, did I cut you off? No, go for it. I, had, I have to ask this question. So speaking of stool samples and throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks, there was a tweet I saw the other day. Um, I believe it was from you, Laura. It was on your, your website of like your, your tweet roll down at the bottom. It said, when feces is the best medicine. <laughs> so you got to tell me, what was that in reference to? So um, that was in reference to a lab that is working on developing fecal transplants. Um, mm-hmm. And they're trying to do so in a way that limits the amount of um, potential problems that could come up in that sense. Because I have had clients ask me before if they thought I should, or if, I thought that they should try a DIY fecal transplant. I was like, uh, no, please do not do that. That's awesome. It's, and I'm like, I mean, they're, they can listen to me or not, but I cannot Ooh. in good conscience tell someone to do like, you know, go home and break out the Vitamix or whatever and get a friend. But oh my it's, gosh. they are looking to develop a more, um, a more controlled fecal transplant method where they're actually testing donors multiple times or testing them across months to make sure that their their gut bacteria is appropriate and and that it's stable and all that. So there are a lot of a lot of success stories with certain um infectious diseases so like someone with like a, a really bad C diff infection that hasn't responded to the normal antibiotics there's been a lot of good results with that. Um there's been good results with like IBD and stuff like that where you know there is they've tr- basically tried everything else and people are getting desperate and they're like, let me try doing the fecal transplant. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch because like I said, I mean, I think watch is in to see how it plays out. Not to yeah, actually well, not watch to- in person. <laughs> right? I, I can see the right. ER visits now. Well, Mrs. Jones, how did you get that rectal tear? Well, you know, I was doing my own fecal transplant. <laughs> not the wrong size Turkey baster. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, anyway, so like I said. I'm glad you're the one who said it, though, Laura. <laughs> That's, I'm from New Jersey, so I tend to be a little vulgar. So I'm okay, trying to keep it under control. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, I think if it's, if it's really well, um, well planned and, you know, the, the, the sample that you're going to use has been tested multiple times and they know there's no pathogens and they're pretty confident that it's going to be the right bacterial mix, then it can be really helpful for people that basically are at the end of the line and they don't have any other options. Um, that said, the article did also point out the fact that because this is a new technology, they don't know what the long-term ramifications of that might be. So, you know, the immediate benefits are pretty clear. And if it's for some of these people, I mean, it ends up being like a life or death scenario where 
they're just not, I mean, they just have like completely no digestive capacity and they can't eat food and everything goes right through them. And they have the, the transplant and it's basically, they've gone back to normal. Um, so for a lot of these people, yeah, it's, it's worth the risk. But again, because we don't really know what the, what the outcomes of this might be in like 5, 10, 20 years, I don't necessarily think it's something people should just play around with. I think it should really be like a kind of a, a last ditch effort if nothing else has helped. But yeah. yeah, so does that help explain why I was talking about poop on Twitter? Yeah, well, it was just when feces is the best medicine. I mean, like, <laughs> when something like that comes you, up. Yeah, if you get to that point, things are really, really in trouble. Like, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. that's, <laughs> well, and it's, I mean, it is really like those patients that they're, you know, they've lost 30 pounds and they're, you know, any more weight that they lose, they're really at risk for like heart conditions and that kind of thing. So or, you know, there's lots of children that pick up these uh, nosocomial f- infections in the hospital. Um, and then, you know, the typical antibiotics, probiotics aren't helping. And at that point, it's like, well, what else is there to do? But like I said, if I have a client that's like, well, I've heard it can help with weight loss. It's like, no, definitely not. <laughs> Don't do it, please. <laughs> Let's try something else a little bit more, uh, a little bit safer. So. Yeah. That tells you the mentality of losing weight, though, that you do anything like doing a self-imposed fecal transplant to do that, like you know? Swallowing, swallowing a parasite or something. I mean, I don't oh. know. It's, again, like I said, my my uh, my focus on body composition isn't super high. So if somebody is feeling good and able to exercise and, you know, even if they're like 10, 20 pounds overweight, I don't necessarily think it's a huge deal. But, you know, a lot of people do and a lot of people don't like to have that extra weight on them so you know sometimes people can get a little desperate if things aren't working yeah well let's hope that's a level of desperation none of us ever have to experience ourselves yeah hopefully they try carbonite first right Kiefer (laughs) right let's hope (laughs) because yeah I just I yeah I, I just can't imagine that level of desperation I can't even imagine that thought process of Man, I really need to lose ten more pounds. Maybe I should get a fecal transplant. Like, yeah. how 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 does that logical flow occur? And again, flow was not intended as any double entendre <laughs> there. Well, again, like 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 we were talking about before, there's a lot of this evidence circulating where you know they uh, associate certain gut bacteria with obesity and that kind of thing. And it's interesting because I've talked with Jeff Leach, who's kind of like one of the big. Um, guys that's studying the gut microbiome and that kind of thing. And he even says that a lot of that evidence is not even accurate because it's, it's only taking into account people on like a Western diet and that there's a lot of people in other cultures that are eating their traditional diets and they have higher levels of certain types of gut flora. So again, it's one of those things that people tend to jump on information way too quickly and, you know, just assume that this one study showed this, so that must mean that it's true for everybody in every situation. So, um, so when people say, oh, well, I have the wrong balance of gut bacteria, and so I want to get the right balance, I think you know, if you want to try changing your diet in a way to you know, encourage a different gut flora growth, then that's fine. But going, going to that level of like, you know, getting a transplant, I just I don't – I mean, who knows? Maybe in 20 years that will be like the, uh, the obesity treatment that everybody does. I mean, I don't <laughs> rather – Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, you mean it has nothing to do with the stick of butter they put in their coffee? Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> coming from coming from the uh, traditional medical and nutritional education, I mean, I, if I had to choose between a 
a fecal transplant and a, a gastric bypass, I'd probably go with the fecal transplant. But, you know, just because well, I've yeah. seen the, uh, the damage that can happen when 80% of your GI tract is removed. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, I think obesity is one of those things that, again, people tend to get desperate and the whole diet and lifestyle change is too difficult. So... Well, I think that, you know, if you were to compare, I think actually fecal transplants and gastric bypass is probably on the same pl- level of playing field in terms of, you know, where you would implement that and the desperation that you'd be in. Because, I mean, you do have a lot of data suggesting that, you know, for example, gastric bypass, you can cure, you can reverse diabetes. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, so I think that, but you have to be at that level. I mean, I think same way, if you have a, a, a gut issue, let's say you have C. diff infection, and this is the point where you have an antibiotic-resistant strain. I mean, a fecal transplant might be the best thing for you. Right. And in, in the same way, if you're a diabetic patient and you've been diabetic and you've tried, you've exhausted all your ways of trying to control your blood sugar, and you're 500 pounds, well, I think that that point in time, you know, surgery might be an alternative. You know. Right. So it's always, I, I just, it's always what's the worst worst case scenario, and exactly. you know, is there a better option? So. For a lot of people, it's it's it tends to be some of those more um, more radical options. Unfortunately, yeah. even yeah. even for clients that haven't exhausted their their less radical options. Well, it's all about risk versus benefit, right? Right. Well, and sometimes ease as well. Like, how easy is this compared to you know doing the right thing? Like a friend of mine, her friend overweight, like very overweight, had a lot, had a difficult time her whole life, had some kind of, as best I was told, an emotional problem with ice cream. Um, and Don't so, we all? yeah. <laughs> and, and so this was justification. She went in and decided that, you know, she tried carb night. She tried all these different diets. She's like, I just can't stick to them because I'd load up my freezer with ice cream and I eat it every night. It's like, well, stop buying the ice cream would be my first suggestion. But in her brilliance, she went in to ask about bypass surgery and they're like, well, you know, you're, you're not really big enough to be considered. You would need to gain another 75 pounds. So she gained another 75 pounds so that she could have the bypass surgery because she figured that would cure her addiction with ice cream. Except for then, you know, you have the people (laughs) that post bypass, they, they binge on a sleeve Mm -hmm. of Oreos and then they have dumping syndrome that becomes, I mean, my, one of my instructors at school actually had a patient that did that, and she actually died from dumping syndrome because she wow. ate a sleeve of Oreos after her, her surgery. So, I mean, that's, that's a, whole nother, uh, a whole nother ball of wax when you're talking about the mental side of mm-hmm. this issue. Yeah. And again, that, I think that that can come into play with the whole argument about carbs. Because um, like I said, I mean... For me, being a dietitian, a lot of what we talk about in our education is like the, the emotional and motivational side of all the diet stuff. Because even if you know what a person should be doing, that doesn't mean they're going to do it necessarily. So right. a lot of times for a lot of my female clients who have this, it's like a fear of carbs. It's not even, it's not even that they're just avoiding it and getting frustrated because it's not working. It's like I tell them, well, what if we added in some carbs post-workout and see what happens. And they are like terrified to do so. And I just think sometimes coming from that, you know, psychology background that I have, I almost want to try to deal with the food fears first. And if that requires some level of carb increase to get them over that like terror about a banana, I think it's worth, even if they do gain a few pounds or even if it's not the ultimately ideal diet for them, 
But if they can come to me at the end of the, the time together and say, wow, I just feel so much better about what I'm eating. I don't have these like food fears or I feel so much more comfortable around food and I'm not like thinking about it 24 seven. To me, that's a, that's a good health benefit that maybe doesn't translate into like a physical change. But if mm-hmm. the mental state changes, then I, to me, I think that's a win. And, you know, I think sometimes we don't always consider that side of, of things when we talk about diets because, you know, it's not as measurable and you can't really, you can't really like do a lab test to see if somebody's anxiety levels are, are out of control. They have to kind of, you know, share that information with you. So, um, it's funny. I can think of some other examples like that. Uh, for example, fat, people mm-hmm. were deathly af- afraid to eat fat back in the day. And, you know, recently I've, you know, gone out on some, some dinner excursions and I realized there's a new food fear that's out there. That's one of the worst I've ever experienced, like to the point of psychological distress, if they think their food touched something of this type and that's both gluten and dairy. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah, God. I those mean- are the new fear factors when it comes to food. And I like nobody, nobody I've had an opportunity to go out with and share a meal has not been allergic to one of those two and basically just, you know, been terrified by the thought of, no, 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 don't, no, no, I can't, you know, I I don't want to even taste that. Oh, no, don't put it on my plate. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they brought that out and they put it next to that. Like, I can't have any. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a ridiculous. Yeah, that's a pretty intense. And I mean, there's that term orthorexia, which I think if that's a legitimate diagnosis that we could probably apply to those people. Yeah. Um, And I I mean, I I understand the people that. I'm blaming paleo, by the way, for all of this. (laughs) Well, and there are, I mean, obviously there are people that cannot eat gluten and they need to be vigilant about it. And, you know, they're, you know, celiacs. And I think people with, severe autoimmune disease should probably as a default, just try to avoid gluten as much as possible. I mean, it shouldn't be to the point where, oh my gosh, my, my, my date is eating pasta. I can't go out with this guy anymore or something like that. Um, but I think it's, it it does turn into something where people see gluten or dairy or legumes or whatever the, the food item is as being like a hundred percent, almost like it's like a poison or something. And, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't eat a ton of legumes. I don't eat a ton of dairy and I don't generally eat wheat products just because I personally don't feel great when I eat wheat products. But on the flip side, I'll have beer. And like, I think sometimes, and the other dietitian I work with also drinks beer on occasion. We kind of like joke about it saying like, we're going to get kicked out of paleo if we admit (laughs) to drinking beer. But it's like, at the end of the day, I think it just, you don't have to go full on like eating you know, your eight servings of whole grains a day versus being like terrified of gluten. But I think just having a little bit of a, a more laid back approach about food and not being afraid of things is really important too, because honestly, I, I think your perspective about what you're eating can affect how it, how it affects your body. Um, and if you're constantly worried about what you're eating, that alone could be enough to, you know, mess up your, your HPA axis and f- screw around with your hormones and that kind of thing. And it may have nothing to do with the food you're eating. So just trying to, mm-hmm. trying to limit the amount of like paranoia around food in general, I think is a good approach for most people to at least keep in the back of their minds. Because, yeah. you know, if you're not celiac, you don't have to worry that like, 
you know, there was gluten in a pot next to the food that you were cooking right. or something like that. So, well, and that's what's what you said is like absolutely true. They've actually done studies on that where they tested people for food allergies. Mm-hmm. And then they went back and they told those people that they were allergic to the things they weren't allergic to and vice versa. Right. And then retested them. Their allergies swapped. Oh they actually gosh. did not have an allergic re- reaction to the things that they now were told they weren't allergic to, but really allergic to and were and had an allergic response to the things they weren't previous allergic to, but were told they were allergic to. Mm-hmm. So basically you know, if you go in and tell, just give someone the impression that they're allergic to something, magically they will become allergic to it if they're susceptible to that thought process. Well, I think that, amazing. You know, yeah, I think the, the more subversive thing would be is that when you vilify whatever you're going to vilify. So let's say you vilify gluten, it reflexively makes whatever doesn't have gluten in it healthy. Yes. Well, yeah. That's not necessarily the case, as we know. We saw that with fat. So. It's like, oh, Snickers are, or, or well, not Snickers. Uh, what, was the, <laughs> what was the candy bar that always said it's like it had low fat on it for a while? Is that like Three it, Musketeers or something? Yeah, yeah. One of them, they had like low fat on there. And it's like, oh, well, if it's low fat, like you just said, Rocky, it must be good for you. Snackwells, right? Yep. Snackwells, another good example. Um, so, that yeah. Coke, that Coca Cola example you were giving earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's fat free, it obviously can't do anything to me. Right. Um, I, this has been a really fun podcast. I hope you hope you had fun too, Laura. We, yeah, I think definitely. we're well over the hour. Probably. I tend to, like yeah. I said, I'm from New Jersey, so I could talk forever about any subject, really. So uh, you got to be careful when you invite me on these kind of things. I'll, I'll take it to the two-hour mark. No, it's, it's been fun, and I think some great, great information has come out, some very important perspectives. You know, I... I even, you know, even though I have my, the, the two protocols that I've come up with and I've been refining over years and helping people use, I'm still one of the first people to say you need to experiment. And these are not, these, these may be appropriate, you know, so far in my experience and in Rocky's experience, these protocols are appropriate, at least for health and performance aspects, appropriate for at least 80% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great, but that doesn't mean that it's appropriate for you. You might be one of the 20% or you might be one of the 80% that it, it could help, but you just can't make it work. Like you have some mental hurdle. And so you need to find something else that's going to address whatever the goal is that you have. And, you know, for most people that's health. A lot of people have become very concerned with their health moving forward. And I know I have, as I've, you know, passed from my twenties to my thirties and now almost into my forties you know, I'm, I'm a lot more focused on, you know, act, being active like I am now into my 50s and 60s and 70s. And actually, I don't care if I make it to 80. If I'm healthy and happy and active at 70, like that's not a bad terminal point, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, so, you know, th- these things have come into focus and you, you, you really need to understand that the perfect health diet, for example, you know, a good name might not be the perfect health diet for you right now. Mm-hmm. It, it might be something else and you know whatever else it is you find that works for you right now that might not be the right thing in five years right you know it, it's really it's about context and constantly you know being aware that your body's not static therefore your diet can't be either 
Yeah, and I think it's important to just not get too attached to one strategy because, um, like we were saying, for example, low-carb. I find low-carb to be really helpful for, like, a short-term, maybe, especially with obesity, like, maybe six months to a year if you're doing super low-carb the whole time and not doing, like, carb refeeds and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, people can regain insulin sensitivity. They can lose a lot of that excess weight. But that doesn't mean that the person should never touch another carb again for the rest of their life. It just means that that was what they needed at that point. Um, so I, I think it's, I try to always encourage my clients to stay open-minded about whatever they're doing because if they tend to get too attached to one type of strategy, then if things start to go downhill, then they may just say, oh, well, you're not, like the joke is like, you just need to do paleo harder. Or you just need to do low carb harder. And it's like, <laughs> You know, there's there's something to be said for looking at someone's diet and saying, okay, well, you thought you were doing an appropriate low-carb diet, but really you're under-eating, and so let's add the fat. Like, that's that's a change. So as long as people are willing to try changing and seeing what happens and giving it a good shot, and if it doesn't help, then going on to the next option and not getting, like, emotionally attached to the outcome, I think, you know, I think that's generally good advice for everybody um, just because, again, it it can be – a diet in your 30s is not the good, uh, the appropriate diet in your 50s. And the same goes for a diet, at, you know, during the summer may not be the right diet for the winter or something like that. So, um, you know, I just think people need to kind of relax a little bit about, you know, defining their diet as like, this is what I eat and this is what I don't eat. And this, you know, gluten's going to kill me, carbs are going to kill me, um, fat's going to kill me. And just, I guess, just, you know, be a little bit more flexible and a little bit less, um, you know, rule driven when it comes to what they eat. That, that seems like, do you have any closing comments, Rocky? Because that seems like a really good place to end the podcast on. Definitely. Don't be dogmatic. Yes. Exactly. Wow. And don't be the opposite where you say everything's stupid either. <laughs> All foods fit. That's what, uh, that's what a lot of dietitians say. So um, yeah. I, I can't say I agree with that. <laughs> See, I do regularly rotate McDonald's filet of fish into my diet. You're getting those, those uh, <laughs> that, that's mega like, threes, right? Well, you know, it's, it's a once every other month kind of thing. I just, I really enjoy them. And I'm stellar. 99.99% of the time, those filet of fish do absolutely nothing negative to me. They just give me a very good oral sensation, basically. You know, they just, there's something about the taste and the texture. And I don't know what it is, but I just love McDonald's filet of fish. I don't get anything else. Like, I don't want their fries. I don't want anything else there. But those filet of fish, yeah. Yeah. How many? How, but yeah, the question though is how many? Do you really want me to answer that or is that a rhetorical <laughs> question? Let's do a study uh, and see how many <laughs> I will very, trial. I will very often just get a bag of four to six and eat them all in that one sitting. <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They're like crack. And you know, they're just sitting there and I'm like, and I know I can eat four with no problems, and if I'm really hungry, I know I can eat six without an issue, and I just really love them. So well, I've got the new ad campaign then for McDonald's. Filet of fish, good for the gut bio. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not sure. Get shredded that on filet of fish. I was going to say the day after that event, I don't think anybody would be able to advertise that as good for gut health. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out a way to develop the ice cream diet. So I'll let you guys know if I come up with that because I'd be very happy if I could eat ice cream for everything. You know, even if it, even if it doesn't work, I guarantee you can sell that like crazy because there was the Burke 
is it the Berkeley muffin diet? Is that what it was? A few years ago, it was all about just eating muffins. It was a cookie diet, right? There was a there was also a cookie diet. I I guarantee you could you could make the ice cream diet and just make it sell. It doesn't even make matter yeah, if it makes people yeah, fat or not. Exactly, it wouldn't matter if it worked. <laughs> and then if it did, I'd be a, a rich woman. You'd be a genius! Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me on, Kiefer. I enjoyed this. Uh, hopefully, your your listeners are still hanging on and haven't just quit the podcast halfway through. So, yeah, now I think they'll listen all the way through this one for sure. <laughs> Especially if we put in the show notes that uh, we're going to cover feces as the best medicine at, towards the end of the show. Oh gosh, <laughs> lovely! <laughs> all right, th- thanks for being on, Laura, and uh, thanks, Rocky, as always. And this has been another episode of Body IOFM. You've been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.